0: Okay, uh, well, this was one of Danny's favorite chapels as a student. It's my least favorite chapel, because uh, I'm always nervous about what the students are going to ask. Uh, but uh, I, I was thinking about, as, just even as Danny was talking up here, giving announcements, announcement, it's, it's just, uh, the, you would, none of you here would appreciate this, because you weren't around when all this was happening. But I just, I had these flashbacks of Danny Johnson sitting in the back row of our church here, when he was an MSU student with his ponytail and he'd come in late and, he, <laughs> and he'd leave early and he would just never want to, I didn't even know, I, I could see him back there. I'd never get to talk to him because he's in late and, and leave early. And, but I would see him over in the music department at MSU because our daughter was in there a lot. So I'd see him. And so uh, my wife and I were trying to figure out how can we kind of engage with this guy? We see him at church, et cetera. And uh, so to, to think about from where he was then and to where he's at now is really amazing. So all that to say, if some of your questions want to be about how messed up Danny was, I, I'll, uh, I'll field any of those questions because uh, I have a lot of information. Jacob, you can stop
1: the recording there. <laughs> so,
0: uh, I have a lot of info. So, all right. All right. With uh, well, that as background, really the parameters... Uh, the, the only parameters you can the, typically the questions fall into three areas, uh, four areas, maybe um, just cr- Christian living, um, uh, Christian ministry, uh, theology or passages of interpretation. So those four categories, anything in those realms, the, the, really about the only thing we say that is off limits is I just, we don't, and and I haven't had any students do this for a while, but we don't want students to sort of use this chapel to try to pit one professor against another professor. Like if you know, professor holds a view and you think, well, I wonder if Brian's is different. So I'm going to do that to sort of stir the pot and ask a question just to say, you know, so we we don't want to do that kind of thing. And and I haven't had that for a while, but um, if it's a legitimate question, glad to try to answer it. even if it is in an area where you know that maybe a professor has a view that you're wrestling with, that's fine. Just as long as your goal or motive isn't to try to, to pit professors against each other and, and that type of thing. So, with that as background, uh, just wherever, I think we'll start there. We've got one question to jumpstart us. Yeah.
1: So, um, the first question this has been mulling around in my head as I got asked, asked this in the ministry in part Um he, my, this friend of mine, had a problem with the song "All Glory Be to Christ." Mm-hmm. He said, "Is there any biblical evidence that we should give all glory to Christ?" In fact, is there any biblical evidence that we should we should give Christ any glory when we see is usually to give all glory to the Father through Jesus?
0: Sure. Okay. Good question. Uh, a couple passages come to mind on that. One is you can turn to this one if you want. It's Philippians chapter two. Um, And I I think this does address the issue, though it won't use that exact wording, which is often the case when it comes to songs. Songs can have wording terminology, which can be biblical without using an exact biblical phrase. But in Philippians chapter 2, this is, of course, the only theological section in the entire letter to the Philippians. It was, uh, it was a more of a personal letter from a friend to a, a group of friends. Uh, so there's not a lot of theology in Philippians, uh, very more practical stuff. But this, ironically, the one section of theology is one of the deepest sections of theology in the entire New Testament. Because Paul uses Jesus as an example to us of humility by talking about the incarnation where he says in verse 6, "...who being in the form of God, that is existing as God, did not consider it something to be held on to, to be equal with God, but he, but he humbled himself, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." So it is talking about how low Jesus was willing to stoop, how low he humbled himself uh, to become a man and then to die on the cross. And then this phrase, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. And every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's your phrase, the glory of God, the father. And you're right that the the glory is directed to God because it's just the role of the son to do that. But here it says, God has given him a name so that he will be exalted. Now it doesn't use the term glory, but you also have the passage in the upper room discourse of John 13 through 16, where it is specifically stated, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy spirit and he will glorify me. So he does specifically use that phrase. And it just reminds us that the role of the Spirit, which is why he's not prominently featured in the New Testament, though he's clearly a member of the Trinity and he's God. But why is the Holy Spirit not prominently featured in the pages of the New Testament? Because he always directs glory to Christ. So um, so, in all that to say, I, I don't have a problem with that song. I think it's a very good song. And I think it's an appropriate song based on the the goal and role of the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ. And passages not, this isn't exclusive, but passages like this that say that the Father has exalted Him, which, again, by implication means He is to be given glory or glorified. So, yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, I pre, certainly appreciate us all trying to have precision in songs and being careful, uh, so, so we should do that. But um, that one in particular, I don't, yeah, I wouldn't have issue with. So, good question. Yes, all right. Another question. Okay, great.
1: <clears throat> so, I've always questioned um, the plurality of um, in which God speaks in Genesis one twenty-six. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then he goes on to say, and twenty seven. So God created mankind. So is that the first mention of Messiah and Holy Spirit?
0: Um, would you say? Yeah, and I would answer it this way. I would say this, this is a good catch on your part. Actually, the plurality of God is in the very first verse in the Bible, because uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Interestingly, the Hebrew word there is Elohim which is plural, Uh, and because the Hebrew name for God is El. That's singular, El. And in fact, you have a number of times in the the Hebrew Bible where it will use El, and then some other word like El Makadishkim, which is the Lord our righteousness. El Shaddai is a famous one because of a song a number of years ago, God the Almighty, uh, El Elyon, Lord Most High. But the Bible opens not with El, in the beginning El, God created, but Elohim. And so scholars have wrestled through what, why is that there? And I think there are several reasons. One, there is in the Hebrew language a sort of a, a grammatical structural rule that's called the plural of majesty. In other words, in Hebrew, there aren't a lot of uh, adverbs like very or exceedingly. So if, if, in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you've got two choices. One is you repeat it. So that's why we see like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Isaiah 6. That's a way in Hebrew to emphasize something. He's exceedingly holy. Because you don't have a lot of words like exceedingly, abundantly, etc. Or the other way is to use a plural on something that's singular and it's a plural of majesty. So a lot of scholars say, well, what you have in Genesis 1.1 is a plural of majesty. In the beginning, God, singular, but God is so majestic, we're going to use the plural. Well, I, I, I can agree with that. But I think there's another reason, and that is what you're getting at, and that is the fact that in Hebrew Bible, even though the Trinity of God is not expressly delineated, it is hinted at, indicated, and maybe to say this, there is room given for, for that doctrine to be specifically detailed in the New Testament. So the use of the plural in Genesis 1, 1, and then just a few verses later, let us make man in our image, clearly those are plurals in Hebrew, are indicating that God, though he is one, is a plurality. And there is, we find out in the New Testament that this plurality is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. So yes, I, in all, all that to say yes to your, your uh, question that that's probably the first time a Explicitly plural is used of God, although we do have it in Genesis 1-1. Yeah, good question. Yeah, Andrew.
1: Uh, Brian, I was listening to a podcast on church planting, and they were asking the question, what constitutes a church? One verse that they used, 1 Corinthians ten seventeen. Uh, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for or because we all partake of the one bread. His argument was that what constitutes a church is when they take the Lord's Supper together. Mm -hmm. I would like to hear your thoughts on that, as well as are there other scriptures that that this is when you know that you are a church, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially talking about like church planting, whether that's foreign or local, but within that context.
0: Sure. Yeah, this is a really good question, Andrew. And The reformers wrestle with this a lot. Uh, In fact, I've done a lot of reading from the reformers on it because, of course, they're coming out of the Catholic church, which they began to realize is really not a church, not according to the Bible's definition because of the false theology, the the false spiritual leadership and all of that. So they're like, well, what is a church then? What constitutes a church? Interestingly, uh, some of the things that they delineated that they believed constituted a church, we may not think of. Namely, almost all of the Reformers said one of the marks of a true church is the practice of church discipline. Well, interestingly, there are a lot of churches today that don't practice church discipline at all. But for the Reformers, that was a key mark of the church. So uh, taking my cue from them, I would say that uh, just having believers together doesn't constitute a church. Because you can have a bunch of believers together for Bible studies or whatever, And they are brothers and sisters in Christ, but that's not a church. So what are the elements of a church? And I would say that this podcast you're listening to, I think, is on the right track. I wouldn't limit it to the Lord's table. I would say it's really a church when the group practices the ordinances, i.e. baptism and the Lord's table. So that would be one of the mark, a mark of a church. Uh, Another would be, according to what we see in the book of Acts, like Acts 14, that Paul and Barnabas went back through every church and established elders. So you need spiritual leaders. So it's just a group of Christians together really doesn't constitute a church. There needs to be spiritual leadership. So, again, the, the reformers said it this way, and I, I would largely agree with them, that uh, what constitutes a, a church, the practice of the ordinances, i.e. baptism in the Lord's table, they would say the practicing of church discipline Um the proclamation of the word and then the presence of spiritual leaders so at least and maybe you want to add others but at least those four elements tells you when you let's say if you're going in as a missionary to a, a foreign culture where there's no believers so just leading believers to Christ you don't necessarily have a church you have the start of a church but then that group would need to have leadership uh continual preaching slash teaching of the word um be participating in the ordinances and practicing church discipline. So that's, yeah, follow up on that? Yeah, uh, Hold on, Andrew, me... okay. follow up to that. They mentioned something about
1: covenanting together. Mm, sure. uh, I don't know if that's a reformed, if that's what they're, if that's where they're basing it off of. Um, I didn't have a chance sure. to ask them. Where are they getting that idea, committing together like that, covenanting together? Sure. And they also were talking about that as forming a church as well. Sure. sure. A, a mark of it. And right. I was just confused at where yeah. they got that from. Well,
0: what it sounds to me like is that uh, they are uh, placing somewhat of an emphasis on church membership, uh, which is a whole issue in and of itself. I mean, um, church membership isn't foreign to the Bible in the sense that we know records were kept. Paul talks about in, in Timothy about not putting a widow on the list if she's a younger widow because she may remarry. Talking about the list of those who are supported. And we know that they kept records of numbers and some of those things. So there was clearly organizational structure in the first century. A lot of Christians sort of view the first century church as just hodgepodge, loose. No, they, they had order. They had, just like we were talking about earlier, They but Church membership is a little awkward because church membership is more of a practical tool in our day and age than it is a strictly biblical issue. I'm not saying by that it's not biblical, but the reason you don't have the biblical uh, instruction on it like some people give today is, frankly, in the first century, church membership was inherent. And what I mean by that is, listen, if you were a Christian and you lived in Corinth, guess which church you went to? There was one. I mean, it's the church at Corinth. So it's not like you could go down the street to the Baptist church or the Bible church or the community church or whatever. So that has been partly what has sort of forced this emphasis on church membership or covening together. That is, we are affirming that we belong to this church. It's more of a and I'm not against church membership, but it's more of a a tool in our culture to know who belongs to this fellowship. And also it is helpful for elders um, where Peter says in 1 Peter 5, to the elders, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. That is, who are the ones that I as an elder, our elder were who are we responsible to God for? Because people come in and out of our church all the time. You know, visitors, they come three weeks, then they go to another church. So who, for whom are we responsible? Well, church membership is the helpful tool to know that. Okay, these people have covenanted. They've agreed. They're committed to us. We're committed to them. Now, where that breaks down is we as elders here in our church are committed to a much broader. There are a lot of people that have not gone through membership in our church, but we consider them a part of our church. So we see a responsibility to them, et cetera. So that's where membership gets a little messy and kind of breaks down. But I understand the practical benefit of it. But my guessing is that whatever this person or this group you're listening to Nine marks. I, I was going to say it before you said it. I knew it, was, it had to be nine marks because they have such a heavy emphasis on church membership. Yeah. Sure. So Thanks. again, yeah. Got one over here, Brian.
1: Yeah. Hey, Pastor Brian. This is from First Timothy one, yes, uh, verses twelve through fourteen. Uh, two things. Um, one, why does why does Paul say that um, Christ Jesus our Lord, uh, who strengthened me, considered me faithful, putting me into service? Um, and I was just wondering. Uh, what does he mean by that? How did he consider him faithful? Is that the time in between his conversion and, like the the time in the in the desert or or, or whatever? Oh, and then sure. the second thing, um, the when it says, "Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly
0: in unbelief." If yes. you just explain those two. Sure, things. sure. Yeah, the 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 former one, the first one about consider me faithful. Um, what, which where, which verse specifically? That's that's 12. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, there it is. Free economy, faithful, put, putting me into the ministry. Um, that's a tough phrase because um, Paul, you, you know, I saw where you were going in your thinking. It's like we need a track record to know if someone's faithful. So is he talking about from the time from his conversion to et cetera, the problem with that is that Paul was put into the ministry the moment he was saved. So he had no track record. So therefore, he's obviously referring to something else. Well, he can't be talking about his life pre-Christ. I mean, he was, he was faithful to his Judaism, so that's a possibility. In other words, the Lord knew that I, I'm faithful to what I believe. So Paul was so faithful to what he believed prior to his conversion that he persecuted Christians. So that's one possible way to look at it is that, hey, the Lord saw my faithfulness, that is my commitment to, to be faithful to what I believe, and thus he saved me and put me into the ministry and got my theology straightened out, so now I'm faithful to believing the truth. Uh, the other possibility is just that it is, um, um, I don't know what word I'd use here, but just sovereign uh, omniscience that he was saying, uh, the Lord saved me and knew I would be faithful to him, and so he put me in this position. Because if you stop to think about it, Paul was in such a unique position as being, he was actually saved to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Our apostle. So there there weren't a lot of those. And frankly, there weren't any of those. He's the lone one. All the other apostles, Peter, James, John, they were apostles to the Jews. They were Jewish apostles. So if the Lord is going to save one guy and make him the apostle to us, the Gentiles, he better be faithful because if he... If he bombs out, there's nobody else. So it's either the idea that the Lord saw I was, uh, you know, I was faithful to what I believed, which would, there would be some merit in that to what he goes on to say. I did this in ignorance. In other words, I was just being faithful to what I believed was the truth. And part of it was the truth because he was, you know, a very strong Jew, believing in the God of Israel, etc. So it's not like he was totally in error. So that would lend sort of some credence to that interpretation that he's referring to that. Um, his faithfulness to what he believed prior to his salvation. The other possibility is is that he's just the, the omniscience. The Lord knew I would be faithful. He Therefore, by his mercy, he put me in this position. So then coming into your next question about I did it ignorantly and unbelief that he had mercy on me. I think simply what that is saying is that is that God acknowledges... Uh, I don't know how to word this, Stephen, exactly, but God acknowledges where people are at, and there, is a, there are degrees of responsibility depending on what you know and what you don't know. The classic example I think of is uh, Matthew eleven twenty 20-24, where Jesus, Matthew says, then he began to rebuke the, the cities in which most of his mighty works were done, and saying, woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Batesida, woe unto you, Capernaum, because if the works which were done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented a long time ago. And so it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. What is behind that statement is that the Lord Jesus clearly recognizes Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. You have more accountability because you had more information. You, don't, you can't claim ignorance because you had exposure to the truth. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have the privilege that you have of seeing all my miracles. So in the same way, that, that concept, I think, is behind this, that Paul is not excusing himself where he said, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. What he's simply saying is, I just acted on what I knew. I, now, I, I was wrong, totally wrong. But I was, I was not going against the truth that, that had been presented to me. I was just going by what I knew. And God had mercy on me to see that I was, yeah, I was trying to act in accordance with the truth that I had, and God gave me more truth. And that is a principle that I, I think is thoroughly demonstrated throughout Scripture. The, the classic example is Acts 10, Cornelius, who acted on what truth he had, and God moved heaven and earth to get more truth to him. I mean, he gave Peter three visions of this sheet coming down, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And, uh, and he sent uh, an angel to Cornelius in a vision. I mean, just think about all that God did to get the gospel to Cor- Cornelius. Why? Because Cornelius responded to the truth he had and God gave him more truth. so I think what Paul is saying is I was just acting on what I knew which was limited and some of it inaccurate and God therefore had mercy on me. So all that to say this I do believe that there is such thing as an honest seeker. you know there's a lot of ministries built around they're called seeker sensitives and I think there are a lot of misunderstandings in that and a lot of error in that. In other words, like if we can just make the message, uh, uh, you know, appealing enough, people will believe and it doesn't take into account total depravity and all that. So I don't, I don't go there and seeker sensitive, don't say anything. Else. But there, there, there is such thing in the Bible and in life as an honest seeker who wants to know the truth. And uh, Danny and I were talking about this just yesterday when we were talking about approaches to apologetics. When do you try to give evidence to people, or when do you? Well, a lot of it depends on your audience. If it's someone who really has legitimate questions, they're, they're searching, they want to know the answer, then it's totally appropriate. But giving evidence to people who have willful unbelief does nothing. So again, all that to say, Paul's unbelief prior to conversion wasn't willful unbelief. It wasn't like, I know the truth, I hate the truth, I'm rejecting the truth. He, it was, a lot of it was ignorance. And so God had mercy on it. Yeah. Would you, would you say based on that, that Paul
1: probably never
0: saw Jesus? In the yes. Yeah, I think Paul was, all Paul knew about Jesus was just sort of what he heard in his contexts, in his context, remember what it was. His context was, these people are heretics and Jesus is, you know, uh, uh, a phony or whatever, so he never had exposure to the truth. Yeah. Good.
1: Yeah, Pastor Brian, my question is uh, kind of regarding like the education level of lead pastors, mm-hmm. um, and I guess my question would be something around: It does a layperson lead pastor allow for a flourishing church? And kind of the example I'm thinking of is a situation where you're in a small town farm community and the pastor's retiring and there's a man in the church who has no formal education, maybe like one year at a Bible college um, and is willing to take the position, should the church pursue that or should they permanently or should they pursue it temporarily and look for a more educated Mm. man to to fill the lead pastor role?
0: That's a a great question. It is really a good one and I'm torn and let me explain both sides of the coin. On the one hand, You've got statements from Paul, like 1 Corinthians 1, You see your calling, brother and how, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the weak things of this world, the foolish things. So God uses ordinary people. So we don't ever want to, you know, start putting in, in sort of standards of qualification that would eliminate your scenario where you've got this godly man who loves the Lord, maybe doesn't have a lot of background or education, um, could God use him? Absolutely. And so you, you, you don't want to say that the church shouldn't look at that. So that's one side of the coin. Here's the other side of the coin. And I don't know how to say that. I hope I can say this in a way that doesn't sound wrong or prejudiced or biased. The other side of the coin is this. I think God's people ought to have the absolute highest standard they can think of for a man to be their shepherd for this reason. And I mean educationally, morally, and everything, because which is more significant? Someone who takes care of your body or someone who takes care of your soul? Now think about what a doctor has to go through. Would you go to a doctor who said, yeah, I went to med school, but I didn't really like it, so I dropped out. So, you know, uh, you know can you fix my d- defibrillation of my heart here? I don't, <laughs> I'd run from that guy. I want the guy who's the sharpest the, the most educated, not education of itself, but in other words, he's got the most knowledge on the subject. He's got proven track record. I, it's like, but the church, now I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but the church in general doesn't even think that way. And they'll just put anybody in the position and say, this man is going to take care of our souls, but he has, has no qualifications compared to a doctor who's going to take care of your body. So that's the other side of the coin where I feel like um, that, That so maybe maybe this is the way to say it. For me personally, let me just get it away from it. For me personally, I feel like as a shepherd, I ought to be as equipped and qualified and educated and not that education necessarily equips you, so that's why I'm separating it, but. But if I am caring for people's souls, and, and, and Hebrews 13, 17 says, I will give an account. Why would I do less than a medical doctor does to prepare himself to take care of people's bodies? So those are the, those are the two sides of the coin. And, and I don't, so I don't know really how to answer your question. So um, could a church do that? Yes. Should they? Yes. There are some circumstances where that would be, that would be appropriate. Especially if maybe in that scenario, he happens to be the man who is the most uh, biblically knowledgeable, the most um, uh, theologically uh informed and, and the most uh, most experienced in walking with Christ and shepherding people. Well then, okay, he's the most in the whole church, so it makes sense. He doesn't have a degree or have any then okay, then you would you would do that. But I think. You do that always with the recognition that you want, and I just said he was the best guy, you want the best guy you can get in there, not for pride reasons or not for any other reason that there's nothing on planet Earth more significant than caring for someone's soul. I don't care you, what what other occupation there is. And so it should always be treated as so significant and, and should be cared for in that way. So I... You know, I contradicted myself in your answer, but you can see the tension in my mind. I totally get what you described, and I could say, yes, I would not say no to that scenario. And then there's the other side of me that says, you better make sure that the guy that's leading you is, is a doctor of your soul that you can entrust yourself to. So, yeah. That's a great question, Matt.
1: Uh, following up on that uh, same topic, in the case of having a, a man who is willing and who has a good solid foundation in that church um, to replace a pastor who is stepping down, would you um, encourage that church to, if within uh, the possibility budget-wise, to um, maybe encourage that pastor to take online classes
0: absolutely. to continue to absolutely. better equip. That's a great thank you. You helped me answer the question. And that's, that's the scenario that I, what I would say is, okay, if this man is the man that God seems to be directing your church to put in that position, and he is godly and he's qualified, but he also has a lot of room to grow, then, then that church ought to say, we'll help him grow even more. We'll do whatever we can do to equip, get him equipped more, get him, et cetera. And that's a great, a great follow-up to that. That would be a good, a good solution to that tension. Yeah. Yeah, that's um,
1: it. Question on the topic of tongues mm-hmm. um, and trying to sort through understanding what it was, what sure. it is, what it's for, and all that. I'm curious how, how to understand uh, two passages um, together, uh, reconciling them. Uh, the first would be in Acts 2, Pentecost, where um, uh, speaking in tongues, then the people hearing them in their own language. And then in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 2, um, Paul's saying um, that the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one no one understands him, um, but he utters mysteries. So sure. how do you understand sure. those, those yeah. two working
0: together? Great, great question there. So first of all, and I'm glad you referenced Acts 2 because it is the passage of primary reference. That's a, it's a term theologians use to describe the first time something is addressed in the Bible. So like if you're going to address marriage, you go back to Genesis because that's the passage of primary reference where God instituted. It. So you start there before you go to Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, etc. So with this topic, the gift of languages, you start in Acts 2. And in Acts 2, as you've indicated, what seems to me at least to be pretty clear is that what they were doing is they were speaking in languages. Dr. Luke even lists the languages. I don't know how you can get around the fact that they were speaking in languages. They weren't speaking in gibberish or uh, it was it was unknown language in the sense they didn't know it. But the people hearing them knew it because they said, oh, listen to them. They're, they're extolling God, and they're, they're magnifying the mighty works of God. Well, how did they know that? Because they understood what they were saying. So uh, that is so key to start there in Acts 2, that the gift of tongues... In fact, I wish, how I wish, that the King James translators in 1611 would have just used the word languages there. Because it is the Greek word for languages. Now, in defense of them, I understand... Why they didn't, because in 1611, the word tongues meant languages. In other words, even you go back to an old hymn like, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. What is that song saying? It's saying, oh, I hope that a thousand different language groups all come to know Christ and sing Him. In other words, I long for people from every language around the world to know Christ. So, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise is a a prayer, a wish that many language groups would know Christ. So, in defense of them, they used the word tongues because that was, in 1611, the same as saying languages. It's not the same for us today. But because the King James translators used the term tongues, most of our English translators, knowing how controversial this subject is, And listen, this is a part of translation, gang. You need to understand that. Translators know where the hot buttons are and they stay away from them. Because I'm not, I don't want this to sound worse than it is, but they want you to buy their Bible. In other words, if you buy, if you get a translation that irks you, you're not going to buy it. So for example, when it comes to baptism, the Greek word baptizo is not even translated in our English Bibles because baptism is so controversial because infant baptism and sprinkling and immersion. So what do the translators do? They don't translate the word. They just transliterate it and call it baptism, uh, baptizing, which is just a transliteration of the word. So all that to say this, when the King James translators use the term tongues and then you start doing more modern English translations, The modern translators know this is a hot button. This has been that way since like 1960 is when when all of this started becoming real controversial. So therefore, our modern English translations will not go with the word languages. They go with the word tongues. Almost all of our English translations use the word tongues. And they could justifiably, and rightly so, just use the word languages. That would clear up so much on this topic. If we just said the gift of languages... All right, so that's Acts 2. When you come into 1 Corinthians 14, and I don't really have time to demonstrate this because we'd have to walk through the whole chapter, but let me just give you something, Dustin, to think through and put this to the test to see if it works. And Basically, what I'm saying is this, is that in verse 2, though most Christians read this statement positively, I would submit to you that Paul is not stating it positively. In other words, how most Christians read this is he who speaks in the tongue does not speak to men, but to God, as if that's a good thing. And I would submit to you that in the context of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that's not a good thing. So what Paul is saying is he who speaks in the tongue speaks not to men, but to God. That's not good because for two chapters, chapters 12 and 13, Paul has been saying that with your spiritual gift, you should think of others. Your gift was given to you for others, for the building up of the body. So if you're doing something that only God hears, that's not good. You don't, you're, not, you're not helping the body. So he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. That's not a good thing. What good would it do for, for someone to get up here in chapel and speak in you know, Arabic? Does anyone in here know Arabic? That would benefit nobody in this room. So what he's saying is if you speak in a language, if you have that gift and you can speak in a language that you've never learned, which was quite an amazing, miraculous gift, but there's no one there to interpret it. You're you're not even speaking to men. You're speaking to God. God is the only one who understands you. And that is not helpful to the body. Um, However, in the spirit, he speaks ministries. In other words, he's just speaking something mysterious that he doesn't maybe even know and nobody else knows. And that's not a good thing. So this verse is commonly used to promote and support like private prayer language. You're just speaking to God and you're not speaking to men. But 1 Corinthians 14 is not about private prayer language. It's about edifying the body with your spiritual gift. That's this entire section beginning in chapter 12. So even also a few more verses uh, down in verse 4, he who speaks in a language edifies himself. Now, again, most Christians take that in a positive way. In context, that's not positive. All you're doing is building up yourself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now, all you have to do is just start reading 1 Corinthians 12, and you tell me if you read 12, 13, and 14, what is Paul exalting in this section? He is exalting, edifying the church. So, both verses 2 and 4, in my opinion, are completely turned on their head by most most Christians and read in such a way to promote the exact opposite of what Paul is promoting. Namely, don't use your spiritual gift for yourself. Use it for the body. So I think that's, that's an answer. Does that answer your question? Okay, good.
1: Uh, when dealing with typologies of Christ in the Old Testament... Um, when Jesus and the apostles gave reference to it, yes. was that an exhaustive list of typologies, or is that mm. uh, examples of finding typologies mm. in the Old Testament? Uh,
0: great question. And uh, that is debated um, because, uh, you know, if you study typology, you will, um, you will see that there are those who hold to not only stated typologies, which are easy. I mean, if the Bible states it as a typology, that's easy. But are there inferred typologies? And I would say this. I know some of my friends really get on me for this, but I think, yes, that there are other typologies than the ones that are mentioned. Now, because I understand the danger of that, that you just jump into wild allegorism, I have good friends around me who just beat up on me for that. Brian, can't, know the only typologies in the Bible are the ones that are stated to be typologies. And I get their caution. But, for example, um, Joseph, in the book of Genesis, is nowhere stated in the Bible to be a type. I don't know how you cannot see typology with Joseph. I mean, hated by his brothers, rejected by his brothers, sold for silver, uh, taken to, he, he took his bride from a foreign land. I mean, just think about the parallels, which he G- eventually exalted to the place of authority. You've got this amazing picture in Joseph's life of, of Christ. And so, but that's never stated anywhere in the Bible. So I have maintained for years that Joseph is an not a stated type of Christ, but inferred type of Christ. Again, as I say, there are a lot who would disagree with me and say, "No, you can't do that." But I would just say this. If you go the route I've gone, which is to say that I believe there are other types that are not specifically stated, just be careful because it is really easy to jump from there into allegorizing things that don't that don't f- really fit or they don't work and then you and, and you're destroying the original intent of the passage and all of that. So I understand all those concerns and dangers, but I don't know that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you're accurate with scripture and you don't allegorize, you don't you don't destroy the original meaning, but you just see a picture of Christ. I I don't have any problem with that. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. We got one more. I think we've got time for at least one more. You have no idea how good it feels when the time's almost up. (laughs) Corbin, is that you?
1: Yeah, so just one question. Um, How can a young man such as myself or a woman uh, best build up the body of church that I'm kind of like in, given the age I'm at and with the education that I'm receiving here at this college?
0: Hey, very good. Thanks for asking that. And I would just say this, just uh, just look for ways to serve. Doesn't, it may or may not be a position, um, but just look for gaps, needs, and see if you can fill them. That is the best thing you do. I remember when I I was a teenager, when I came to Christ and I was involved in a little church in Florida, little country church, and I wanted to serve the Lord. I was like 16. Well, I mean, what, you know, what could I do? But it's like, I'd see something in the bulletin, like someone needed to help clean the nursery. I I can clean the nursery. If that helps them, I'll go clean the nursery. Or, you know, someone needed to drive. I had my driver's license then. You know, drive some young people. This well, if you trust my driving, I'll I'll drive them. You know, or, but anyway, I just I had no position. But I remember like seeing help needed in like the fourth grade Sunday school, just a helper, not even a teacher, just to help kind of keep the kids cross. I can do that. So, I just just jumped in to try to meet needs and to serve. And but the neat thing about that too is that the more you do that, the more broadly, the more, coming back to the question earlier on spiritual gifts, the more you begin to see what your spiritual gifts are, and the more the body affirms those. Interestingly, when I was a young man, I had no interest in being a pastor and no interest in teaching the Bible. But I did want to serve. So that's why I just would serve in whatever capacity. And then, like, I remember one time the church, it was a little country church, so not a lot of people to draw from to do things. So we were going to do like a church picnic and someone said, Brian, would you share the devotional? I think by this time I was maybe like 18 or something. And I'm thinking, I'm going to share the devotional of the church picnic. But, well, they asked me to. So I shared it. And then there was another setting where they did it. Then I had members from the body say to me, Brian, have you ever thought about, you know, going into vocational ministry and being a pastor? I said, never. And they said, well, you should. Because when you share the word, the Lord seems to use it. So. Maybe you should consider. That's what gave me the idea to go to Bible school and become a pastor. It wasn't that I just said, I think I'm going to go to Bible school and become a pastor. It was the body affirming, saying, no, we think you should do that. Now, I'm not saying it always has to work that way either. But my point is, if you just look for gaps, holes, needs, and just meet those, uh, whether it's an official position or not a position, that's one of the best things you can do, one, to help the church but two, to be an example. Because then you're being an example to others, and you're doing what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, where he says, let no one despise your youth. Don't let anyone look down your youth, but be an example to other believers. So you're being an example of just serving. And that's, I mean, what did Jesus say? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So that's, I think, the best thing you can do.
1: Brian, most of us are leaving here after chapel and going to to our spring break. Mm. Would you give us maybe a last word or a last word as we go and then pray for us and close. Sure.
0: I'll do it. Yeah. Uh, all I would say is uh, on the sp- spring break issue, um, t- two sides on one side, uh, enjoy it because I know you work hard as students. You've got papers, you got tests. And if you can take a, a little, you know, uh, get uh, g- just get, catch your breath and then, then do that. Don't forget that Jesus said to his men, uh, come apart and rest for a while, early verses of Mark, you know, you're, you're doing so much, Just you need to pull aside and rest so if you can use it that way, now if you're way behind in everything, maybe you can't use it that way, but uh, so on the one side, take a break take a, some kind of break and enjoy the break, but on the other side of the coin don't take a break from your walk with the Lord I mean, you might take a break from, you know, from doing a paper or doing that uh, just to catch your breath, but don't you, you know your your walk with the Lord hopefully transcends Montana Bible College it's your walk with the Lord it's not so when Montana Bible College isn't in, in session, you don't put your walk with the Lord on the shelf so continue your walk with the Lord, continue intimacy with him, developing that, that walk with him, but if you can catch your breath, it's a good time to do it that's what, what spring break is for so all right, let's pray. Father, thank you for these students. great questions here today. thank you for uh, eager hearts, uh, open hearts, and just thank you for a chance to uh, think through these issues. Uh, I do pray for the students as they head to spring break, that those that are especially feeling stressed and pressured, that maybe it would be a chance to just catch their breath. And, and maybe uh, even if they're doing homework, it, it would be an encouragement because they're catching up on things. Uh, so as they break from their routine of not being in classes and so forth, I pray, Father, they would not break from their routine of of nurturing their walk with you that they would continue to develop that as they are wherever they go and whatever they're involved in and you'd bring them back all safely and and rejuvenated and and ready to finish strong and finish well so we pray this together in jesus name amen